I want to add my welcome to that, Pastor Leachman, and uh, I don't know what's wrong with them. I don't feel sore at all. I plan on moving twice the speed today that I was earlier. I think we got everybody back, although Ken didn't make it this morning. Oh, yeah, there you are. Oh. I was looking for you over there. I was like, he's not here. So all of us got back. William's here even. And uh, I always kind of have some interesting perspectives and what I hear from people. And I think they really, really want us, need us, beg us to come back next month and uh, to pour the rest of the concrete. But um, we uh, it's interesting to hear how their view of our church is. And this is some of the statements that were made. You have all the young families at your church. And, of course, most of who they're bringing are in their 70s. <laughs> I don't know how they were going to pour concrete, but 60s and 70s. And um, I looked around. I was like, you do know this is all of our... <laughs> no, I didn't tell that. <laughs> but, um, and then also I heard something very interesting um, my son came up to me and said, uh, Pastor Leachman's over there yelling at everybody to get to work. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yeah, he's taking my job this week. And so he learned from one of the best. That's what I tell you to say. So. But be in prayer for that. We were supposed to have camp there this summer, and uh, it is in no shape for that at this point. So we need to be praying very hard that um, God does a miracle there because that's what it's going to take, I think, for it to be really operable for camp. And uh, I'm kind of anticipating that camp might be moved either by, or both probably, by what week and also by where. Because once we change where, it usually changes when we can have camps. So don't be surprised if we come back to you in a month uh, and say it's going to be changed to this place, perhaps at this different date. But we'll pray that that's not the case. We may be surprised. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Second Corinthians. We're going to... Whoa. We really need to work on our levels there. <laughs> Hey. Um, we're going to begin in <laughs> chapter 3. Uh, I'm sorry, that just struck me as really funny. <laughs> verse 14, we're going to read into chapter 4, verse 6. Um, the chapter divisions in our Bibles were added by men much later, and it is unfortunate that this chapter division happened where it did, because it really doesn't match the context, we really need to tie in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, very obviously with the message and the argument that he was building through chapter 3. So we're going to pick up in verse 14 of chapter 3 and go into chapter 4, verse 6, and you will see very quickly the association between the content of the first part of chapter 4 with what we have been studying here in chapter 3. I'll bring you out of the New King James Version, 
God's word declares, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. All right, we're going to try this again. I think you can turn up just a little bit higher than that. We'll get these all figured out. Somebody was playing with the board recently. Hey, Oliver. Oh, he's not here anymore. Yeah. So. I'll get him tonight in nursery, Sunday school. So we'll reset everything here. It's one of the hazards. None of us did anything like that when we were that age at all. They didn't have electricity back then when Bill was that old. <laughs> oh. Well, we want to continue our study and moving from glory to glory. And I hope it's been an encouragement and also a real challenge to us um, to give us real clarity in understanding the Christian life, but also the Christian work. And not only that we do it, but we do it well. And the tools that God has given to us to minister his light, and we want to remind ourselves that it's not our light, it's his, that we are simply reflecting to a world um, is the most precious work there is on earth, is the highest calling of man to expend ourselves to deliver other men from death, from darkness. It exceeds all other things all other pursuits that we have pale in comparison to this pursuit. And this Paul wants to communicate, and I hope we've been communicating it well together one to another over these last few weeks. And it might seem that I'm being very deliberate, 
But as you know, many times as I go through a book study, I center in on one passage that becomes almost the theme of that book. And so if I asked you what passage I kept going back to in our study of 1 John years ago, what comes to your mind? God is light, 1 John. In Him is no darkness at all. And if I went through 1 Corinthians, hopefully we would draw back to a statement that you heard week after week after week. Oh no, what was that? <laughs> Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And that was 1 Corinthians. It was one of the cornerstones. And if there's any cornerstone that I want to spend time on, uh, and I, it's not going to be the driving thing you're going to see throughout here, but it's this idea that we are to be transformed from glory to glory. And it's important that we understand what we are talking about is the level of righteousness that God calls us to um, that is not of our own making. It is that which Christ imputes to us that we then walk in the light as he is in the light, uh, that we walk there um, as a testimony and that we are to be transformed into the same image, image from glory to glory. And that image is the image of Christ, his righteousness. And so we looked several weeks ago at the light of the law, and we looked again last week too at that, the light of the, the glory of the law of Moses. And we saw its purpose. Its purpose was to show us that we were in the dark. It's to illuminate us. And uh, not to uh, expose everything of God's holiness and God's whole plan. It was simply to direct our attention that we really are in darkness and that there needs to be a pathway of escape. And I compared it last week to the exit signs in our building that are of great value to you when to orient yourself and to recognize where you are at when the lights are off in this room. They come out and they are the brightest things in this room, uh, but much like they were for Moses, they're veiled. Uh, they aren't, uh, you're not seeing the direct light from the bulb that's in there. There's a veil there. It's a red-colored veil so that uh, it glows a little bit, otherwise it would be too bright. And so it was that Israel couldn't look at even the law, and they wanted a veil between them and Moses and the reflection of the holiness of God, let alone seeing God's holiness directly. And so the veil was placed there, and Paul's going to take that illustration and bring it into the, what the hearts of men are like, not just Israel. Certainly it still applies to Israel even to this day, um, but it's all men. They do not w want to see that light in their darkness. They shield their eyes from it. They, they turn away from it. Um, if it's shown at them uh, so directly, and so it need, it, they have their hearts veiled from it, and yet it is the only illumination in their life. If we turned off the lights here in the room, and now that Mr. Arcel is back, we can do that. No, I'm going to do that on you. 
It, you would think it foolishness to try to all gather around an exit light with our Bibles or any other book and try to read, and yet that's exactly what our world is in. They're in that kind of condition where it's the only evidence of, of right godly living that they can really tolerate. But as they have lived extensively in darkness, their eyes aren't accustomed to light. And indeed, it, in their minds, it brings them injury to be exposed to it. And so we find men huddled around the doorways into eternal life, um, being exposed to just a little light called the law, and they've been trying for at least a hundred years in this country to extinguish even that light. That there is no right and wrong, there is no law of God that is worthy of any of our attention. Uh, we want to put it out of our midst, we want to put it away from our public places, we want to separate ourselves from, we don't want to acknowledge that there is such a thing. We want to extinguish the little bit of light the society has in the law. But that light is on one side of a door. And it's to draw people to that door. But it is not the door itself. And this Paul says here that the veil in verse 14, the, the last half, the veil is taken away in Christ. That Christ becomes that door. Even as John described the way, the truth, and life, he's the door. Uh, he is that means to righteousness that is divine. Not of our own making, but that which he has lived for us and can impute to us, that is to grant to us. And so here we are gathered around and there are many people in churches today who are gathered at the door but haven't opened the door. And they are there under this veiled light of an exit sign that says you can get out of darkness and they're sitting in churches today across this land and around the world with the Bible in their hand, the law before them that they can plainly see the holiness of God and yet they refuse to open their eyes to it and they stand at that doorway and believe that they are standing in the light because they're under the glow of the exit sign. They're in the brightest part of the room. But the room is full of darkness. And they are just outside the door, but they're on the wrong side of it. And Paul says, listen, once you receive Christ as your Savior, the veil is taken away, and you are suddenly ushered into the very holiness of God. The door is thrust open by trusting in Christ, and now you are in blinding sunlight but only blinding to those whose eyes are accustomed to the dark. For those who have been out in the daylight, it's not blinding, it's brilliant. It's that which we bask in and enjoy. And we realize by this I can, I can avoid every pitfall of life because now I can see plainly and evidently what is right and what is wrong and, and I can walk in a manner that is beyond even my capacity because I'm now walking not in my goodness, which the Bible describes as God's view of it as filthy rags to be kept far away, 
But no, now I can walk in the goodness I received from Christ. And this Paul calls liberty. Not liberty that I can do whatever I want. The liberty that now I can serve God in righteousness and truth. And in Galatians chapter 5, if you want to turn there very quickly, Paul uses, again, the same writer, Paul. The author, of course, is God, but the writer is Paul. We go to Galatians chapter 5, and we have the same kind of uh, idea of liberty. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. That we go back to the law. Why would anyone who is walking in the light want to go back to the glow of the exit sign? Why would we want to go back and say, well, you have to keep the law? No, you have to keep something much better than the law. Because now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the privilege and the responsibility to walk in the light that you have been shed in your life, which is much higher than the law. So why are we going back to circumcision and food laws and Sabbaths and holy days and all of this, Paul says. And he concludes this kind of idea As we looked a little bit farther on in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, you ran well who hindered you from obeying the truth. That going back to the law is actually going against the righteousness of Christ in you. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. It's like a little leaven leavening the whole lump. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he calls us not back to the law, and, and what we describe as legalistic churches are those that keep calling us back to the little glowing exit sign and want you to live your life by the little flashlight of the law when you are walking in the daylight of the Christ righteousness, that we live lives that are not uh, careless of the law, but are carefree of it because we are living beyond it in a righteousness that surpasses the law so much as daylight surpasses that of a flashlight. And this is what Paul's talking about when he says that that in Christ, by the Spirit of God, we're going to be transformed from glory to glory. We're going to be transformed from the glory of the law and the lesser glory to the greater glory of Christ and that we even have an opportunity to walk out of uh, that into a more intense glory. And I say, can you do that out there in the daylight? Sure you can. Go from a shadowy area, walk out under a porch in the shade, and then walk out in the sun. All of those places are in daylight. And even as we see in many churches, they're sitting there on the the wrong side of the door. Many believers think they have a relationship with God because they're sitting under the glow of the exit sign. 
because they've never really been in the daylight because you don't know what the daylight is like until you trust it in Christ. He drops the veil. He opens that door. And when we trust in him, we then enter into daylight. I can't explain daylight to someone who's never seen it, who's all lived their whole life, and the brightest thing they've seen is this little glow of the exit light. That's it. How do you explain daylight to them? I can use the word brilliant, penetrating. They think that describes that. Because that's the brightest, most penetrating light they've ever seen. The veil's dropped. When we trust in Christ, we walk out into the daylight, and now we move. And so not only is there a group there that's really still in darkness and lost, but there are believers that have really never walked out into the brightness of full light. They stay in the shadows and shady spots and these gray areas that are certainly much brighter than the darkness of the sinful uh, humanity, but they're unproductive. And I believe these refer to the people Jesus taught about in the parable whose seed fell in good soil, but because it was surrounded by weeds, it grew up, but it never produced anything. No fruit was there. There was no value to the owner of the field for that seed to come up and be choked out by the weeds. And Jesus Christ says the weeds that are in that story are the cares of this world. That we are children of the day who care too much about the world. We are drawn more to the shadows than we are to the brightness of righteousness. And Paul, as he wants to set, strike this balance and draw us out of that darkness with the tool of the law, doesn't want us to be satisfied with living in the law. He wants us to go into the brightness of Christ. This he moves the Corinthians towards. And he says, this is our ministry. To unveil men's faces. That they can see in us a mirror of the glory of the Lord. The end of chapter 3, verse 18, and we ended with this last week, and here we will pick up and press forward this morning this ministry of reflecting glory. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your opportunity this morning to look into your word and for its precious promise that we can move from glory to glory. We thank you for that law, and we've seen its purpose, and we see its purpose still today to bring men to salvation. So, Lord, let us see the end of its purpose, which is to draw men to a doorway into the light, real light, that in comparison makes the lesser light vanish away. Lord, help us to see the importance of that ministry in our lives. We need your help in all of this. As we open your word, we pray your spirit might direct us in it. And guard us. 
from our own errors, we might be attentive to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, having looked at that work of the transforming us from glory to glory, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we're going to transform our lives as we're going to become something different. We're going to become what we were not once. We have an opportunity to minister it. And Paul comes to this, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 4, and we find him drawing this all into a conclusion, this truth, this principle of the fullness of the gospel that begins with the law to point to our sin and show us how much in darkness we really are. It then uh, calls us to a door, that door being Jesus Christ, and that once we accept him as Savior and Lord, that this really is an exit out of darkness, that he thrusts open the door and brings us into the light of the holiness of God, that we are not now good people, but we are made good people. We are not self-righteous, we are made righteous. We do not walk in our own, but in his glory. So because of this truth, we ought to maintain ministry. And Paul says, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy, and this is the work of God, to keep us from staying in darkness and the condemnation and death and misery that comes with it, God has extended mercy to us to enable us to be reflectors of God's glory. And Paul sees his role not as being among the people of Israel, but like Moses, who is here to show the holiness of God in the countenance upon his face, and that this is our ministry. And we have this twofold ministry to be the exit light in people's life. And I don't have to come in there and I don't need to smash them with the holiness of God in its fullness. They can't handle it. I'm not going to come to them and say, well, you know, you need to dress a certain way. You need to get this language out of your mouth. You need to, uh, you know, do your finances, you know, this way. You're giving, you should be generous and all that. I don't need to approach them with any of those finer points of righteousness that I deal with with Christians. In fact, I can't even really go to them anymore with Ten Commandments. And when I deal with people out there, I usually boil it down to just a few because, first of all, they don't recognize God, and so keeping his name holy and not using it in vain and worshiping other images and, and uh, all of that aspect you can hardly use at least not the introductory levels, maybe as they draw near to the door you can use more of the law to point them to their need for a Savior, but uh, they are so accustomed to darkness that I pretty much boil it down to one or two things. Usually thou shalt not lie, because the fact is they're willing all to recognize that they have lied to people. I say, one law, one law, one law. God says that lying is a sin. If you've told a lie, you deserve eternal punishment in a lake of fire. Are you guilty? Now, I usually don't start that way, say, you dirty, rotten liar. 
Now, I usually start it some way of like, how many of you like being lied to? And I've not really found anyone that enjoys being lied to. Even when the question is, does this dress make me look fat? Even that question, they don't want to be lied to, really. They really don't, guys. I'm sorry, they don't. If it does make them, tell them before they buy it. Okay? Um, That's just a little marital advice there. (laughs) And they said, no, I don't like being lied to. I said, but have you told lies? And from what I can tell, most of people's lives are lies. Through and through. They are being lied to. Some of them even know it. And they are living lies, and they are actively engaged in lying, and I take this one little light, this little pen light of the law. That's about all they can handle. They won't acknowledge much else. I don't talk about being honoring your father and your mother. I don't even talk about covetousness, um, because our whole economy is built on covetousness. It is the American standard. Covet what your neighbor has and be as good as the Joneses and, and um, this superstar has this, so you should buy it too. You know, I drink this, why, shouldn't, why aren't you? you know? and so our whole society is built on covetousness, so we can't hardly use that part of the law. But boy, I come down to, and we don't recognize lust as adultery anymore, so well, there's plenty of that going on. And, and you know, we think... Uh, Stealing on small levels is just taking it to the man, right? So I'm down to a pen light. And even that, even just showing one area of our life that we stand before God and we conclude I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I say, Pastor, that ministry doesn't sound very exciting. Oh, no. It's the most exciting ministry there is. Because you're drawing them with that one little pen light of one commandment, one part of the law, you're drawing them to a sense of understanding the depth of the darkness that they are in. And hopefully I can draw them to other aspects of the law and keep bringing them into it. And at some point, many times they just rebel against that. No, I don't want to acknowledge that any of that is wrong. But they've been confronted with that light that shows them the way out of darkness. And it's our responsibility to do that. And Paul says, I'm not going to lose heart in that, for this is the mercy of God. Because the fact is, they deserve to stay in that darkness and it's judgment forever. They deserve that. And mercy is when God doesn't give us the stuff we deserve. In God's mercy, we go forth and say, you can have something better. You don't deserve it, but you can have it. But we do it by first showing them that they're getting what they deserve. They deserve the judgment, the misery, that they're experiencing, and that is their future without Christ. Why? Because I mean, I like people to feel, to squirm? No. Because we have a ministry to them that as I have received mercy, that God brought a light into my life, 
and showed me my sin so that I could see a need to escape it and to trust in Christ and has brought me into light that as I have received this mercy from God, I recognize the need to have that ministry to others. And I'm not going to lose heart in that because I know the conclusion. The conclusion is that, I'm, that we want to take them from this lesser glory into a greater glory that they can come into the daylight that they can't even conceive of. And I want to make that very clear. We've talked about that in 1 Corinthians. I've talked about that, and some of you have kind of pressed against that, that there's no sense engaging the world with all the rest of theology because they can't understand it. Because their minds are veiled. They're darkened. They cannot grasp spiritual truth if they haven't grasped the fact that they are in a desperate need of a Savior and Jesus is that one. Once they receive Christ, now they're in the light. Now I can teach them and disciple them. And so it's, it, this is the order that God gives us in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples and teach them. We want to put the cart before the horse, and I will have to answer all their theological questions before I could possibly, you know, get them to trust in Jesus. Wrong. They can't conceive of the answers that you're giving them to their questions. Because a veil is over their eyes, over their heart. Even if they can cognitively grasp the meaning of the words, their heart refuses to recognize it as truth. And they cannot engage it. They will not engage it. And so we have a single message of ministry. And it is not an evil one. It is not one that, that we should be ashamed of. It is not one that is, that is mean. It is one that is purposeful because we know where it leads. It leads to life. And I want these people out of the misery and darkness and judgment and condemnation that is on their shoulders, on their heads, and I want to draw them into the light as I am in the light, and I'm in the light because of the mercy of God that has brought me into his light. How can we lose heart? Think about what the conclusion is. That if I can go put on a little pen light that I know that to them, they're even a squint at that. But pretty much I've found most people are all still willing to say that lying is wrong. They can excuse a lot of things, but pretty much, by and large, they're willing to acknowledge they don't like to be lied to, that it's wrong, and um, liars aren't nice people. And then when you remind them of the lies they've told, (laughs) they start to squirm a little bit. Why? Because I want them to feel guilty? Yes, I do. And this is real important. Okay? We have the world's view of guilt. That guilt is bad. Guilt is a gift of God. Because if we didn't have guilt, the sense of guilt... We would never search for release from guilt. And I compare guilt spiritually to what pain is physically. What would happen if you were incapable of feeling pain? 
And I said, oh, that would be so nice to be able to get up this morning and not feel achy from working on concrete all yesterday and insulation on a scaffolding and, and then sitting in a van for hours. And, and uh, I, I would just love to not have any pain. Really? So that when you injure yourself, you don't know it and you just keep going and injure yourself farther and farther and farther. See, pain is God's gift to tell us something's wrong with our body so we can correct it. And that's what guilt is spiritually for you. But you see, we don't want to have the feeling of guilt. In fact, we even advertise products as guilt-free this and guilt-free that. You can eat this and be guilt-free because it's sugar-free. Never mind that it's got 7,000 carbs in it. It's got no sugar, as if carbs aren't sugar. You know, Guilt-free, this and that. And we have determined that if something makes me feel guilty, that something is wrong, and that's a lie from Satan. Guilt is not bad. What makes you feel guilty is the evil. But you see, we have taken away the cause of guilt as evil, and we've made guilt evil. Just as foolish as it would be to say that pain is evil instead of recognizing what causes the pain is the problem. We don't go to the doctor and say, take all my pain away. He can do that. All they have to do is just puncture your nervous system a little bit back here in your vertebrae, and you'll have no sensations anywhere below the neck. You'll never feel pain again. Right there. Right? No, we go to the doctor and say, Doctor, man, I hurt here and I hurt here and I hurt here. How come? What's the cause? I want the pain to go away, but I recognize that for it to really go away, whatever's causing the pain needs to be corrected in my body. And this is how we must view guilt. That we're going with a mission of mercy and the first thing we have to do is counter the Satan's biggest lie, maybe, that's out there. It's keeping people from searching for the light, searching for a pen light, an exit sign, and that is that guilt is good. You see, and we feel guilty making other people feel guilty. Oh man, I made them feel guilty. Oh, man, I feel so bad. Paul says, no. This is a ministry of the mercy of God. Because once they already are guilty, they should feel guilty. If there's something wrong in your body, you should feel pain. It's to help you correct whatever caused the pain. Well, guilt is the same thing. We come with the law to show guilt in their life because they should feel guilty because they really stand guilty before God and they are under judgment and they should feel it so that they can realize, I need to go to a doctor spiritually and that physician's name is Jesus Christ. I'm not the doctor. Barely a nurse spiritually. The doctor is Jesus Christ. And we just point him to it. That pen line says, well, there is, you know, you tell lies, and you hate lie, people being lied to. You hate lying, be, lying people to you, but you tell lies all the time, and I've heard you, and, and you're lying to yourself, and your whole life is. And then I 
point that little light and I shine it over that door and I said, there's a truth. It was never lied. And if you really appreciate the truth, I'm going to tell you about a person who is the truth, Jesus Christ. And on the other side of that door, you accept Christ your Savior, you'll find truth that will blow your mind. But you've got to cross that door. You've got to open it. You've got to thrust it open. Walk out there. And you're going to go from the glory of this little pen light to the glory of the sun. And this is a mercy ministry that God has put in every believer and has given to us as an assignment. And it says we can't lose heart. And we need to recognize that. And so uh, we don't lose heart in ministry to the word, to the world, I'm sorry, but neither do we lose heart in ministry to one another. That we are in a process, and we go back to chapter 18 because of uh, chapter 3, verse 18, because that's what he's referring to. That's the ministry. So not only are we using the lesser glory to point people to Christ, but even among believers. So that's our mission to the world, to bring them to Christ. And it involves pointing to sin. And yes, you're going to make them feel guilty and feel bad. And you don't need to feel bad for making them feel bad. Don't lose heart. Buck it up a little bit because you have a right understanding of guilt, that guilt is a good thing, because then it causes us to want to address the cause of guilt. And the cause of guilt is a bad thing, our sin. How do you get rid of sin? And so we can try to take alcohol to get rid of feeling guilty and uh, you know, just suck into this, yeah, now you don't feel anything. You haven't solved the problem that caused the guilt, and so the guilt's going to keep coming back and keep coming back. We offer a solution. It's a mission of mercy. Don't view it as, oh, I feel bad because now they feel bad. I made them feel guilty. And the world says that that's wrong, and it's not. Second ministry of mercy is to one another. So not only are we drawing people to the door of Jesus Christ so that the veil can be lifted so that they can see the glory of God, the, the holiness of God, but by the, the Spirit of the Lord, we are also ministering to one another, that we are being transformed. This is a continuous act. That is that even after you go out that door, um, there is uh, more than just stepping right outside the door. that we are now in a process of transformation, that as we draw nearer and nearer to the righteousness of Christ, to the image of Christ, when we become more and more like Christ in our living, in our thinking, in our speech, in our attitudes, that um, we are moving from glory to glory. We are being transformed. And again, not simply by our own efforts, but with the Spirit of the Lord upon us, We have this ministry. This is what church is about. And fundamentally, church is not about a pen light in the dark. It shouldn't be. Um, A pen light in the dark is what you do at school, at work, in your neighborhood, maybe with your own family. You you point to their sin. You say, there's the door to get out. and, And you draw them. That's what you do out there. When we come in among as a church, as a called out assembly of believers, our ministry is also merciful that we be transformed from glory to glory, that we are, that we are, 
making the law vanish away. You might say, Pastor, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) But it is. As you become more and more godly in your life, the law diminishes completely till it's like not even something I address anymore. That as I become more and more like Christ, those things don't illuminate anything. And I've referred to this many times before, and I'm going to do it again today, that I don't worry about committing these acts against the law because I am living a kind of lifestyle that I can't even conceive of doing that. That when, as Paul talks about in Galatians 5, that we talked about that don't let your liberty be an opportunity to, to do whatever you want, but rather by love, through love, serve one another. If I'm engaged in loving service to people, I'm certainly not going to commit any kind of act of evil against them. Not if I really love them and want to serve them the way Paul's talking about serving here, that I want to aid them. I want to be an agent of their being transformed from into the same image of Christ from glory to glory. If that is my motive in ministry, I would want to do nothing to injure that person, like lie to them, like murder, adultery, dishonoring my parents, If I genuinely have the love of Christ for others, the law isn't relevant anymore. It's faded out. I have a righteousness that Christ calls me to that the Pharisees couldn't figure out in our study on Sunday nights. Pastor Leachman keeps going back to a study of the law of the relationship between Christ and his enemies. And and I think you need to understand who those enemies are, they were the religious leaders of the day who are trying to keep the law on its finest points. And Christ comes blasting onto the scene. And here he is healing on the Sabbath. Here his disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Here they are just, just seemingly just throwing away huge swaths of their, of their meticulous little laws upon the laws upon the laws because they thought that the glow of the exolite meant that they were right. They're living in the law. And here comes Christ busting in there. And what was their whole contention? This person doesn't keep the Sabbath! Kill him. Crucify him. He's violating the Sabbath. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's doing this on the Sabbath. This per- these, his disciples aren't doing this. They're not fasting. They're not, they're, I mean, they walked through the, on the Sabbath and they pulled grains of wheat off and ate it in the field. This is harvesting. You're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. And they're just blasting Christ with the Sabbath law. And it, remember who they're talking to. The Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Christ opened the door and let them see a glimmer because he was walking among them. A glimmer of the holiness of God directly. 
They didn't want to see it. No, you can't do that on the Sabbath. I refuse to allow that concept. Peter himself, even having received the Holy Spirit, you want to talk about being transformed from glory to glory, that this is an ongoing part of the Christian life? Even Peter couldn't figure it out, this glory of God, until God finally comes down to him in a vision, and he says, kill and eat that. No, Lord, I can't kill and eat that. I'm a Jew, and that's pork. Well, it's a pig, but it's going to be pork if I kill and eat it. No, Lord! I'll be defiled. (laughs) You're defiling yourself by not obeying me. Kill it and eat it. What was he telling Peter? Your life is no longer defined by the law. The penlight has done its job. You are now a child of the light. Walk in the righteousness of Christ. And it's not about what you eat and drink. It's not what goes into a mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of his heart. And if our heart is right with God, then you can eat whatever you want. Don't be a glutton because that's bad. But I wouldn't do that because I'm living a different law. I'm living a higher law. A law that isn't worried about all this minutia, but rather I am in here. And Paul says, you know, it's summed up in this one phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Once I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal from them. I'm not going to lie with them. I'd lie to them. I'm not going to sleep with their wife. I'm not going to do any of these things. So I love them, and I want to have this ministry of mercy. And so it is within the body of Christ that we want to transform one another from glory to glory. That it is, and so I don't lose heart, and I cannot grow weak in that, for it is too important a ministry that we have. And so Paul says, what does it look like when I minister to the body of saints that they can go from glory to glory to glory to glory till they're into the image of Christ himself with the help of the Holy Spirit? Well, here's what it calls me to do. Verse 2, we have renounced the hidden things of shame. I will not live that way. I don't care if it's legal. Legal doesn't mean right. I will not live that way. We have a different ethic, and our world doesn't understand ethics anymore at all. Paul says, these hidden things of shame I renounce. I will not walk in craftiness. And craftiness is, by the way, lying. It's deceit. It's intended to trick people. It's acting. It's hypocrisy. All these things... Paul says, I renounce that. I'm not going to uh, participate in the hidden things of shame. I am not going to walk in craftiness. I'm not sneaking around. I'm not trying to trick people. I'm not trying to fool them. I am what I am. You see, Papa, I had it right all the time. I am a child of God, and this is what I'm going to be, and I'm going to be a transparent person. There's no craftiness here, nor am I going to handle the word of God deceitfully. I'm not going to try to manipulate and adulterate this scripture to uh, promote myself or my own agenda, but rather I'm going to do it to show forth, that's the word manifestation, but by manifestation of the truth, by showing the truth. What is that? That's giving 
light showing the truth. Not with the pen light, not with a flashlight, not with an exit sign, but with the light of God, his word. To help one another be transformed from glory to glory, we are going to show each other in my life, in my teaching, in every aspect of what we do and how we do it, we are going to commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So I'm using the pen light. I'm living well beyond it, but it's valuable to those men's conscience to bring guilt upon them so that they say, i got to deal with whatever's causing this guilt. The causation of the guilt is your sin. Only one person can take away sin, Jesus Christ. There's the door. Open it. Now you're in the light. You're a child of the light. I'm going to draw you out of every shadow, out of every shade, and I want you into the brilliance of the light of Jesus Christ. We're going to do that how? The same way. Only with a brighter light. Instead of using the law, we're going to live the image of Christ, and we're to call you out to it. And instead of using the Old Testament law to do that, we're going to use the Spirit and the law of Scriptures complete. And yes, it means that men are going to have to walk away from church services feeling a little guilty sometimes. Christian people. And there is a great movement in Christianity today and I see it in some books, I see it in postings on Facebook, and, and I see it evident where Christians are convinced that anyone who teaches in such a manner that makes them feel any sense of guilt should be silenced. And again, because we don't understand the reason. We don't grasp purpose of guilt as something good it's a blessing because it shows me that i still have some way to be transformed in the image of christ and while judicially and in my standing before god i can be standing in the rights of christ my walk is not in accordance with that and so i need to be moved to to conform myself more and more to transform be transformed by god more and more into the image of christ and through the ministry that we have one to another to show ourselves, to show, not to show ourselves, but to show by ourselves the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, and notice where we're directing that showing of the truth into every man's conscience. Once the truth penetrates your conscience, guess what the first feeling is? Guilt. Right? The first feeling I get when I cruise uh, and do a rolling, we call it even a rolling stop to appease our own consciences, at a stoplight, now my kids all have driver's license, they all know the law much better than I ever did, um, and they're like, Dad, you have to stop. <coughs> and the first, of course I don't because then I jerk their head off their shoulders, but um, I'm doing this rolling stop, there's no traffic, I'm out in the countryside somewhere, Dad, that's not a stop. The first, now, is what they're saying true? Yes! My first reaction, guilt. Second reaction, self-justification. My second reaction is not, you're right, son. Let's stop and pray for God to forgive me and I'll try to do better next time. 
Why? Why is that not our second reaction? Because we haven't finished being transformed to the image of Christ. We're still in glory, but we need to move to greater glory. And this is the work that we do, not just from the pastor to his people, but believers to believers. And yes, it's going to, in the process, we know that there's going to be some guilty feelings. There's going to be hurt feelings. There's going to be, I kind of feel bad. Well, are you going to just walk away because it makes you feel bad? Or are you going to deal with the cause of that pain and remove it from your life and transform yourself into the image of Christ? Are you going to allow that truth to penetrate? Paul says, when I show the truth, I'm stretching down into every man's conscience in the sight of God. And I've taken probably too long in my introduction this morning. Your ministry's measurement is God. Not how you feel about it. Not whether everybody says, oh man, whenever that guy preaches, I feel so great. I walk out of there and I just... No, that's not the measure. Um, Paul says, you know, I'm preaching to your conscience, but I'm doing the sight of God. And that's the measure of ministry. Is God pleased with what we're doing to one another? And when we take that step forward and say, you know, that's sin. Even the law says that's sin. And we're supposed to be living... A, a liberty that, that says we love one another as Christ loved us, and, and that's obviously not loving at all. And suddenly I'm no longer worried about lying, I'm worrying about deceiving, and there's a difference. I'm worried about complaining and gossiping, I'm worried about not worried about, but I'm concerned with uh, these other speeches that shouldn't be coming out of my mouth of, of being disrespectful, of being unloving. And it con- should concern me. Why? Because I'm being transformed. And now I've got a much brighter light I'm interested in walking in. But God is the measure. And I can sit here today and say, well, I'm, I'm walking better than I used to. It doesn't mean you're done being transformed, does it? Because you're not the measure. In the sight of God, our ministry to the world is to give them that light of the law. And yes, it will make them feel guilty. And they have to feel guilt before they will sense a need to resolve the sin issue. And secondly, once we're among the believers, we still have a ministry, and it's not, it's not mean. It is merciful that we be transformed from drawn away from just trying to keep the law to living a life characterized by the love of God and to do both these ministries 
uh, we need to recognize that the one we are answerable to is not our feelings of whether we feel bad, not our success rate based upon attendances and uh, how many notches on our spiritual belt, but rather upon God's view of our ministry. We are doing this all in the sight of God. We ought to be in the process of being transformed from glory to glory uh, by the Spirit of God and the truth of God uh, and the people of God. This should be ongoing, and we do it not to man's satisfaction, but to God's satisfaction. When he is satisfied, I'll be finished. And I know for certain in my life, he's still not satisfied. Because I know there's areas of my life that need work. And I can sit there and say, shrug my shoulders as well, all of us have that. Well, that's excusing yourself. I am not going to allow you to do that this morning. You know the areas of your life just as I know the areas of my life that are not in conformity with the image of Christ. Let the weight of that guilt come on you. Why? So that I can be transformed from this glory of the image into a greater likeness of his image tomorrow. How? By acknowledging that the guilt is there for a reason, because I'm guilty. And the best way to get rid of that is to confess the cause, repent of it, and walk in the light. More like Christ tomorrow than I did today. From glory to glory, he's changing me his image and likeness, to perfect in me. Little chorus I learned a long time ago, and it is 2 Corinthians, all wrapped up into one. Not easy, not easy ministry, and that's why Paul inserts, do not lose heart. Don't give up on it, ever. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And Lord, you have entrusted into our care a ministry that we have to acknowledge is beyond us. Whether we use the pen light in the darkness of the world or this light of your Son and his truth in each other's life, we know that the accusation can always be made against us of hypocrisy. And so we need your help. That it's not our truth, it's not our light that we are walking in, but yours. We point men to Christ and not to ourselves. Help us in that, Lord, to sustain the ministry you've called us to. And also to be engaging ourselves in the transformation process that began that wonderful day By faith in Jesus Christ, we open the door into the daylight of our lives. Lord, we know what great mercy there was in your working our life to draw us to that point. We know that your mercy continues to finish that which you've begun in us. Lord, help us to view these things not from the world's view, but from yours. 
by your Spirit. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name.